0: Welcome to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves of Nam, where this conversation takes place. Land which was never ceded land where communities came together to eat seasonally, locally and without exhausting resources. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and rising. Today, I'm talking to Claudio Cassoni at Oficina Gastronomica Italiana in Peran. I had dinner at OGI a couple of weeks ago and I loved everything about it. From the exposed brick walls, to the Art Deco lighting, to the wall of wine, the food and wine were delicious But the thing I loved most about OGI was owner Claudio and the obvious love he has for hospitality and sharing the food and wine of his region, Emilia-Romagna. He told us some glorious stories on the night, so I knew that getting to sit down with him for a one-on-one chat would be a good time, and I was not wrong. (laughs) Claudio and I talked for an hour and explored all kinds of things about what brought him to Melbourne, his memories of making pasta with his nonna, There was a deep dive into natural wines and coffee, and we also talked about the menu at OGI. I drank a velvety, chocolatey espresso, and I'm not sure I can ever drink coffee elsewhere now. Claudio imports the beans from his friend Manuel Tiazzi in Bologna. I actually don't think you've tasted Italian coffee until you drink this coffee. Extraordinary. I was hanging off Claudio's every word. It was such a treat to hear his story, and I'm delighted to be able to share it with you.
1: Have you had a coffee?
0: I did have a coffee, I had an espresso, it was delicious.
1: Ah, yeah. it's, uh, you know, in Paul, I've been importing the coffee since the very beginning. It's a friend of mine, Bologna.
0: The yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> maybe was it who was telling me the story Vanessa was saying that when you were was it when you were a student over there you would cross the town and pay three euros rather than the one euro that all the other students I was
1: fascinated by you know today if you talk about specialty coffee um, it's something that everybody is familiar with you know what it means and especially in Melbourne Um, at the time we were talking about what year was that 2003 Mm -hmm. so we're talking about 20 years ago yeah wow 20 years ago it was already pioneering uh, in Bologna have you ever been to Bologna? I haven't, no um, so Bologna is renowned right uh, like one of the major attractions is, uh, is, uh, Bologna is full of towers but in the, um, in the city there are these two leaning towers and there's a classic like piazza like a square there and there's a small alleyway that leads to his first espresso bar which is a very classic charm italian espresso bar and um, my friend uh, manuel um, today is renowned you know is considered one of the best um, artisan italian roasters and he started out he comes from a family of hospitality entrepreneurs so he opened his espresso bar in the late 90s then he wasn't happy with the quality of coffee that was around uh, and Decided to start sourcing the green coffee from uh, Central and South America and uh, roast it on his own. Then he developed an incredible he's got an incredible expertise, and he has a product that when you taste it, I fell in love with it. Mm. Then I didn't know that years later I was finding myself in Melbourne, you know, yeah. in an espresso bar. And because um, since, since the very beginning, our you know, the, our point of difference wanted to be, like, I want to do an espresso bar that reminds of, you know, the espresso bars in Italy, since, you know, I'm Italian myself, Armando, Davide, so we wanted to have that authentic Italian charm. Mm. So I also thought, you know, I need an espresso that is, you know, uh, a true representation of the Italian espresso.
0: It's quite chocolatey and, um, like, so smooth. and I. It was it, often. I feel like I've had quite bitter Italian coffee before,
1: but that's oh, not yeah. bitter at all. It's Look, Italian. You know, um, when we when we talk about Italian coffees, like when you talk with pizza and other stuff, you get a lot of Italians get triggered. Uh, the truth is that Melbournians, especially in the last twenty years, they've done an outstanding job with uh, coffee roasting. The they did that and that's another thing why I look up on them, they did that you know, with their own philosophy so which is very different from the Italian one. The problem about the Italian coffee market is that uh, it's been stuck for decades and most roasters they still do the same products they used to do 50 years ago without taking account the evolutions in the, uh, in the sector so you you have to know where to get your coffee today in italy because sometimes you still find those you know very bitter classic italian espresso which is you know uh, not very nice um, but at the same time there are some there's been some pioneers oh this is david ah.
0: hello hello how you doing? <laughs>
1: There's been some pioneers like Manuel Terzi, then he got interviewed by the CNN. Cheers. Yes. Uh, there's an international um, uh, espresso bar guide that's been, it's curated by five, six journalists from uh, New York. Mm. And he ended up with two of his espresso bars in the guy. best espresso bars in the world. Wow. So, wow. But he's extremely passionate and competent about what he does
0: and you knew back then you had yeah because
1: i was i was the truth is i was charmed by the way what he was doing Mm. because he was going completely 20 years ago it was completely going going against the trend italians wanted to pay and this is one of the problem in italy italians wanted to pay one euro for the espresso it's always been like that yeah so it's hard with the rising cost of labor uh, ingredients coffee and all of that to keep the the price of a cup uh, below 1 euro you know Uh, if you really want to serve a quality coffee today in Europe it must be no less than 140 Mm. so it was doing 2 euros 20 years ago 182 euros but it was really serving the excellence in coffee so which that triggered a lot of Italians because they thought like oh no this is you know this is not possible it's uh, you know, he's ripping people off. Uh, he went through the first few years. He went through a lot of um, uh, criticism mm. until he got recognized for his work. You know, by a few journalists. And the specialty movement uh, was raising, and all of that. And then he got recognized for for the product and what he was doing. Mm. But that's why I've always been looking up on him because you know he's been a real pioneer. Yeah.
0: And. Uh, and- and at that time you weren't thinking you were going to have an espresso bar in Melbourne. <laughs> what were you thinking? I thought thinking? I was going to
1: be an engineer, <laughs> Oh, because that was, I don't know, yeah, we haven't discussed that last time. Um, I i got graduated in 2007, chemical engineering in the University of Bologna and Modena, which are <coughs> together, and I thought that my career was going to be engineering.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm. And actually that's what i wanted to do and i found a job in, uh, in one of the major companies uh, outside bologna and um, that's been uh, you know how i started in the engineering field i was happy at, uh, i like my job i traveled as well i was traveling i did uh, i was doing traveling a lot, a lot to usa for my company um, then, after three years uh, the company like the whole you know Italy and europe went through the, started going through the g f c mm. that changed a lot of dynamics inside the company and um lots of politics, lots of internal fights I got a little bit burned out um not. Not that much, I was young, I could, you know, stand, all of that, but the corporate life here is the same sometimes, it was very, very tough. Um, so I, I went through some sort of personal, I call it a personal crisis, because I love my job,
0: mm.
1: but I was forced to consider whether that was that's what I wanted to do in life. Yeah. I think it happens to pretty much everybody at one point. This, mm. uh, and. Uh, So I thought that the best way to go through my crisis was to take a gap year, do something else, and I took the chance to friends of mine, two of my best friends just got graduated uh, at uni as well, and we thought, why don't we do that? If we don't do this something now, like let's leave, let's go somewhere completely different from Europe, we want to see. So it was either USA, Canada, or Australia. Wow. Then Canada was too cold.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: And uh, we decided for Australia. Yeah. And then it was meant to be only one year, basically.
0: What did you know about Melbourne before you came? Nothing. Yeah
1: absolutely nothing also actually the only thing that I knew was there's a huge Italian community so instead of going to Melbourne we flew to Perth because we didn't want to you know take the risk of okay we move we go somewhere totally different we're chasing something a new experience and we end up amongst Italians Mm. you know (laughs) we wanted to avoid that (laughs) and so we landed in Perth we spent six months in Perth and are you cold? No. I'm fine. Um, we spent six months in Perth, um, then we bought a car at an auction, and we travelled with a car from Perth to Sydney, basically, oh, all wow. along the Southern coastal Line. Best trip of my life. I
0: bet. That's and nice I did a lot of road trips because yeah. I come
1: from a family. My dad is a big fan of road trips, he travelled Europe, you know. You can't put it on a plane,
0: Yeah.
1: but when it comes to road trips, you know, he traveled the whole Europe in the 70s with a tiny Fiat. Wow. And his friends, you know. It's <laughs>
0: iconic. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wow. And um, maybe I got the inspiration from him. Mm. Mm. What a beautiful. That's exactly what I wanted to see. Un- uncontaminated wilderness, you know, for miles and miles. You know. I remember when. We crossed uh, the Null Arbor Plain in Western Australia, heading to Adelaide, like, wow, like, things that nice. And I traveled in my life, but what I've seen there, like, beautiful, like, this, that was exactly what we, you know, were uh, after. <laughs> then we got to Sydney, from Sydney I thought, you know what, before leaving, I want to go and see Melbourne, you know. So I came to Melbourne, and something happened in Melbourne in the sense that perth sydney beautiful cities like stunning perth beautiful beaches weather amazing uh sydney stunning city, you know it's the opera house, the bridge the bay it's beautiful, but it was like okay it's not my it's not where I would live, you know." Instead, when I got to Melbourne and I arrived, I remember, I still remember that I arrived in February, the weather was terrible because February is when the weather starts changing sometimes, yeah. you know, it was raining. I didn't have long sleeves closed because I thought, I had this idea that Australia is the sunny place, you yeah. know. <laughs> so I was like, geez, this is terrible, like, it's only raining. I thought one day it's raining, well, tomorrow maybe it's going to be better. No, tomorrow was even worse. <laughs> But slowly, slowly, I started, uh, you know, uh, falling in love with Melbourne. Yeah. That's how uh, simply I would put it, because you know, food culture, coffee culture. Um, Where were you staying? Culture in, I did. I I stayed for the first three months. I was in the city. Yeah. And and I thought that that was. Melbourne, like mm. Melbourne is the city. <coughs> then I had the opportunity to move into a share house with some friends of mine that I met here in Melbourne. I was in Collingwood. Mm. So I imagine, you know, first two, three years, Collingwood, Fitzroy, Abbotsford. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like this is so cool, you know. I was younger, there were like house parties, <laughs> there were, you know, so many, like, I really fell in love with the, with the life and the vibe of Melbourne. And uh, at one point, I remember this was the second year that I was in uh, Australia. I remember having a conversation with this guy, a French guy, a French uh, engineer, who told me, "Oksan, who told me, you know, you've got a degree. Why don't you stay here? You you've got work experience as well. You can get the permanent residency." Say, you know, I never thought of that before. I, and I was thinking that it was making it too easy, to be honest. Then instead I went to check on the immigration website, I saw, God, that's true, I, I can use my you know, government sponsorship, basically. So that's what I did, it took me a year. It's been, you know, not as easy as I thought, because you've got to go through a long process, skills assessment, English test, qualification assessments, and all of that. But in one year, I had the permanent residency. So, then I found myself, I had a permanent residency in 2013, so 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: And so I was quite surprised that once you get that, you can do whatever you want. Mm. So that's when I started thinking, you know what, instead of going back to corporate life in Italy, you know, how about I move here for good and I do something here, Mm. because at the same time I was extremely charmed by, you know, seeing how many young guys of my age here in Melbourne had the opportunities that we don't have in Italy, or in Europe in general. I thought, what I was seeing, you know, lots of young uh, uh, coffee owners, restaurant owners, and I say, like... This is really like a land of opportunity, mm. and I thought since the, you know moving here was going to be a big change you know already, I thought, how about I make it even bigger mm. you know and I changed something that I truly love not that i didn 't love my job but sure. I didn't like the corporate life yes. i didn 't like what working for ten twenty years in a company turns you into. Mm. You know, because that's that's what triggered my crisis in Italy. I thought I was looking up and say, okay, which one of these people I wanna become? Into, yeah. Right. Because that was the outcome. You know, you're gonna become with like one of these, and then I realized I had to realize I don't wanna become like one of them. Mm. You know, and um, instead I decided. You know, it was a big risk, but I decided to take it in the name of, you know, the passion I had for coffee, for uh, hospitality, mm. I would say. A story that I always like to tell is, when I was working as an engineer, you know, you work with, uh, and I, I used to work with big budgets, lots of money, numbers, computers, equipment, laboratory, and things like that. So imagine at the end of a full week, for example, full of stress, like, yes, reward was there, but I was going home to my mum, to my family. No one cared. No one cared because they couldn't understand. What, <laughs> no, that's right. You know, it's normal. It's, yeah. Um, and not that that was getting me frustrated, but I was thinking, you know, um, my reward is there and exists only when I'm there. As soon as I'm outside, like, people don't care about it. Not that I needed attention or I needed uh, validation. But once I discovered what hospitality brings you, which is, God, you make me coffee. Mm. You, buongiorno to a lady, you know, you have a chat with someone, you can change their day.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And you see the the impact that seeing maybe grumpy people, stressed people, walking into the espresso bar, you know, thinking, mm, you know, I'm in a rush, I want to have a coffee, geez, this is another, you know, silly mom day, you know, I've got... And then noticing the immediate reward that you get when their mood changes because of the experience that you deliver and it takes something that is a lot easier than spending hours in the laboratory <laughs> in front of computers you know going through numbers <clears throat> i fell in love with the immediate reward that that gives you mm. so and then you see the people who want to come back just to have the coffee that you made and the chat and the energy that you give them ah to me i never wanted to come back
0: yeah did you work for someone else first, and before you opened? I used your to own work post? for
1: the Nicolini's brothers. The, um, I don't know if you know them, but uh, basically the people behind Doc uh, oh,
0: okay.
1: Plus Thirty Nine, uh, A yeah. Twenty um, uh, yeah. Five, a family of Italian, you know, hospitality entrepreneurs, and I learned from them, you know, because. I think especially one of the two brothers, Tony, the brothers are Tony and Remo. Especially Tony, which is the founder of the Doc Group, I think he's been a pioneer of the modern Italian hospitality in Melbourne. Because before him, the Italian hospitality in Melbourne was still geared towards the Italians for tourists, mm. you know. Um, uh, carbonara with cream, fettuccine Alfredo, like more, like more things, spaghetti meatballs, the things that you find in Italian restaurants overseas for for tourists. Mm. Uh, Tony brought freshness and innovation. You know, he started importing ingredients. You know, Dios, That's what that's the name. DOC, DOC. You know, it's a standard. It's a set of law that uh, regulates the standards for for authentic Italian products. Mm. So that's where he got the name. And so he started having, you know, real Parmigiano Reggiano, real Pecorino. I remember because I was here 12 years ago when first they allowed to import prosciutto, for example.
0: Yeah, wow, okay
1: so before it wasn't even legal like you couldn't import prosciutto
0: it's so recent
1: wow yeah very recent okay. I remember because I was here in Melbourne yeah. and when the first prosciutto arrived in a restaurant we unpacked it we unpacked it you know it was on a counter and there were all these Italians there you know <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. like opening a, a, a treasure box you know yeah that's right. a, and um, but they've been you know it's thanks to people like them that you know, they brought a whole new wave in the Italian uh, hospitality in Melbourne. Mm. That, then, it, after that, it's been booming, because then, for the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of places. Today, you've got restaurants, Italian restaurants, some of the most successful ones that are not even owned by Italians. Mm. You take, for example, uh, Tipo Zero Zero in, um, in the city, mm. one of the most successful pasta bars in Melbourne. You know it's not even owned by italians there's some i think in the kitchen there's an italian australian but the other business partners are not even italians you know they learned from the experience that tony and the other and the first uh, let's say innovators Mm. did in melbourne so
0: and and what did you like about this part of town for for opening when you first opened
1: the espresso bar. I think, you know, the this part of town, this, despite I was, you know, let's yeah. say, raised <laughs> in the northern suburbs and I was in love with them. Yes. And that's where I think I got a big uh, push about the idea of coffee and... Living in that part of town allowed me to, to understand that, God, there's lots of things that you can do. Coffee is not just espresso. Coffee is not just the way Italians used to do it. You can do a lot more and you can improve a lot. And that's what, exactly what those guys, the first coffee roasters, like Proud Mary, Seven Seeds, all the northern hipsters did. Mm. You know, they did an outstanding job. Um, they ended up on to onto the Italian television not long ago. Mm. Mm. So um, and but then I wanted, you know like this area here and especially when I started looking for a shop uh, I liked about this area that the ten years ago it was like uh, you know an area that had a lot of European charm, you know, um uh, antique shops. Uh, boutiques uh, like clothes, uh, clothing, homeware like quality homeware, um, Bistro Triari, the French restaurant. So at the time he had a, this, it was such a cute shop. I don't know if you remember Gewurth House. Yes. You know it was a nice European, more like sort of German tea shop. You yeah, know. Yeah. Fortunately, it's not there anymore because I think it was very hard to pay the rent. Right. You know, in this area here, with, by just selling teas and spices,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, the butch uh, Toscanos, mm. uh, I like the European feel, and the fact that in this area here, there's lots of people that travel to Europe regularly. Like some of my customers go to Italy more than me. Some of them go; they have holiday houses in Italy, and if they don't go to Italy, they go to France. Yes. You know, so. Yeah.
0: So they um, understand.
1: They understand, and they, you know, it was. Um, it was what I was afraid of, for example, Carton is an area that ten years ago was taken over by sort of fake Italian restaurants, mm. you know, and I didn't want to mix up, and I didn't want to be forced to do spaghetti meatballs, for example, or mm. fettuccine Alfredo, or carbonara with mushrooms, those sort of things. Um, I wanted to, you know, find an area that had like a good understanding of what modern Italian food and authentic Italian food is. Mm. Uh, And so this area here gave me like, it's small, the street is not widespread, you know, lots of shops. It felt a little bit like, you know, like a European street. Yeah. And it's not easy to find this in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and so I started looking in this area, in other areas around here, um, I had a look at four or five shops before finding this one, but somehow, and I think it was the presence of Gavurthaus, Toscanos, The Butcher, Bistrotieri, you know, that made me make up my mind, to say, I would like a shop in this area here. I didn't know this area, I absolutely, it was a complete stranger. Mm. And that was a problem I also had at the very beginning, the first two years. There was a lot of... I got a lot of the first two years. I got a lot of, you know... I was the new player. I was the outsider. (laughs) I had to earn the trust (coughs) of the locals first. Yeah. So then slowly, slowly, you know, the word of Mount did everything.
0: And did you always have the idea that you wanted to have more of a
1: restaurant in the evenings as well yeah yeah because you know I was born and raised in Emilia-Romagna it's a land and living overseas helped me also this is another thing that I acquired through you know the experience of living overseas Uh, got me to understand a lot about my youth there because when you grow in a place you take for granted everything that you have It's right my nonna making Pasta every weekend. We never, I never bought egg made pasta, never bought once. Like, pasta in Emilia Romagna is made on Friday and Saturday. Mm. So then you eat it on a Sunday and the leftover the next week. Um, I was raised on a Saturday see my not know. Sheeting the pasta by hand eh? Not with the machine Not even with those machines You know The pasta roller Like by hand Yeah There's an interesting documentary You probably watch The Chef's Table Yeah I don't know if you watch The episode with Massimo Bottura In Modena No I
0: haven't
1: uh, If you watch that one You see that the one It's I think in the first series Of okay. um, The Chef's Table Massimo Bottura Take the whole kitchen team to a house outside Modena where there's this lady which is called in Emilia Romagna Sfoglina Sfoglina is the one that makes la sfoglia and sfoglia is the sheet of egg-made pasta when I saw that (laughs) I almost cried because I could see you know those the heritage of those ladies you know that passed on to the next generation the skills Mm. it's a skill it's an incredible skill the one Without using mechanical equipment, just the rolling pin, wooden rolling pin that is this long, you know, and you roll the sheet and you, you know, you bring it to a thickness where I remember still my nonna, you know, putting onto the pin and checking, you know, how thin it was by putting against the sunlight. So that if the sunlight was going through, it means it was thin enough. You know, <laughs> I took all these things for granted. Yes,
0: wow. You know, wow! Like
1: the bolognese sauce that she was making. My nonnies used to make the wine that today I serve here, <clears throat> because for years and years, the tradi- for centuries, the tradition of wine making in Emilia Romagna was uh, making natural wines. Okay, it's just that they weren't trendy, they weren't popular, <laughs> until you started going uh, five, six, seven years ago in the first wine bars in Fitzroy. And you see these strange, strange looking bottles of wine, they've got more sediments, they've got this fizziness, they've got these you know, they're not clear, they're not filtered. And I started thinking, God, you want to see that in a few years time, like, the natural wines will be a big trend here in, you know, not only in Melbourne, but I noticed even in other countries. And then I saw what happened in the same time in Emilia-Romagna. A lot of producers, you know, went back to the traditional natural winemaking.
0: Mm.
1: And so I thought, God, like, what's best for me to just bring, you know, the traditions that I raised up with? Mm. So I'm lucky that I found Gabriel, the chef, wonderful guy. He's very passionate about the pasta. That he he's from Piemonte. He's from Turin. So, which is not... Emilia Romagna, but they got an incredible tradition for uh, egg-made pasta, pasta sheeting, and pasta in general. So
0: is he making more Piemontese food or more no? We got,
1: he's got the, the way he learned the the pasta making is the the way they do in Piemonte because he used to work for Michelin star restaurants in uh, Piemonte. But Piemonte and Emilia Romagna are not far away. Okay. When you make egg-made pasta, we make it in the same way. We just then, shapes are different, yeah. or we give a different name. Sauces can be different, but in general, we like more to think of the recipe rather than sticking to a specific regionality. Uh, for example, the, the rigatoni beef ragout, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful. He came up with this idea. It's made with the rigatoni. It's durum wheat pasta, bronze extruded, and the ragu is not a bolognese ragu, which is very finely chopped. It's more like chunky. Yeah. And it's done all with the knife. It's very rustic. That recipe is more a recipe that you would find either in Tuscany or Piemonte.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, so it doesn't really have to be Emilia-Romagna. But what we've got in common is that, you know, there's a strong artisanal component mm. to the recipe that we be designed. So we make the pasta in house. The ragu, it would be easier to take the meat, using a meat processor you know getting ground and you know i make a bolognese mm. the real bolognese is still done by knife
0: mm.
1: you know i didn't wow. want to do that and grind yeah. all nice. the meat and give these so we say you know what we'll make it chunkier and we make something that got more the trattoria feel you know because that's the food i like to eat when i go to italy i don't mm. There's been a big wave of fine dining restaurant, and it's good as an experience. I like going there, but when I go home, the last thing that I do is going for fine dining. Mm. I go to the trattoria, the osterias. I go. There are thousands of wonderful, wonderful restaurants in uh, in Italy and in Germany. That I just like to get lost there, and uh, you know, and enjoy those things. and um,
0: the ragu was so, so good with the eggs, the baked eggs as well. Yes,
1: so, that's the same ragu we used with the baked eggs and too. And what a
0: perfect size, because I didn't feel, you know, like I'd eaten too much. It's like a really, and it's not too rich, but it's got those really rich flavors. It was delicious. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, Gabriele is good with these things. He's got an understanding of pasta that is, uh, you know, sometimes you do recipes, that, for example, are more like traditional of south of Italy. Last year, we used to make the spaghetti vongole. This year we do the red spaghetti with Mm. lobster. That that was amazing. (laughs) Those are more typical of south of Italy. Yeah. Okay. Um, Because we don't want to get too tied up to our specific region. Also, you got to think that it's you know when you design a recipe today, you got to be very conscious of the ingredients that you use because the prices of everything went up. Yes. You know everything went up after the pandemic, so. We would rather not be tied up to originality instead, you know. I like to, because it's a cuisine that I know quite well, I like always to have something from the tradition of Emilia-Romagna. Last year we used to make the tortelli, which I want to bring out this summer again in a bit of a twisted way. Uh, Tortelli, which are, we call it tortelli, but you can call them ravioli. Ravioli with parmigiano-reggiano red cow which is the Parmigiano-Reggiano age uh, 36 months and it's made by the um, cows uh, that belong to the breed of the red cow which are a lot more special because those are the former cows they used to be used 200 years ago to make uh, the Parmigiano-Reggiano okay. then they got replaced with other cows, Swiss cows, the Swiss brown cow that had, that was able to produce, had a better yield in terms of milk So they could make, producers could could make more cheese, but the flavor is not the same as the red cow. Mm. The red cow makes more milk. It's a cow that is more like delicate to look after, but the flavor of the cheese Mm. is wow. Wow, yeah. So we make, uh, this summer we're gonna make tortelli with a red cow filling, red cow, parmigiano Reggiano red cow filling. It's also, uh, there's a friend of mine, my neighbor in Italy, he's a young guy, he's uh, 20-something. Uh, he's a hard worker that wakes up every morning at 5. When you have cows, he's got 20, 40 cows, no, 20 cows, red cows. He wakes up every day at 5 and he goes back home at 11 midnight. He just goes to sleep at 7 days a week. Wow. Now, there's only one thing that allows you to do this, is the passion that is God. Yeah. Now, I like to think, you know, that what I do supports Him as well. Mm. And, you know, uh, there's a strong component that behind the, the idea of artisanality is that we want to support, uh, you know, the people that work, the product, the people that, you know, spend time and are dedicated to it's an idea you know of sustainability that we've got for the future I think at one point we gotta stop and the pandemic has been a very good chance to stop and reflect about the way we are living Mm. you know there's too much the the way we you know we we think of food the way we think of uh, eating the, the conviviality that we've got around the table you know I like to think that We are doing something that get us to step back a little bit, you know, go back and understand, you know, what's behind a cheese. Yes. What's behind, you know, a homemade, a house-made pasta. What's behind a natural wine. i I have these memories, and I remember. I'll just tell you this story because I remember when I contacted the idea of serving natural wines. I got that last year when I was home. And I went home after the three years of pandemic. Yeah. So running three a business for three years throughout the pandemic has been like an absolute nightmare. Mm. Like three years. I used to go back before that. I used to go back once a year, and it was my you know I was recharging six weeks, and I was recharging the batteries, and I was coming here always with new ideas, new things, new new thoughts. You know. The pandemic had me uh, three years. I couldn't travel so when I went home last year I spent the first week sitting on a chair thinking what the heck just happened yeah yeah you know and I had this feeling of anger thinking well, you know what did I spend the last three years I spent the last three years running around like a headless joke every every day waking up reading the news the numbers what's gonna happen today mm. table service no table service take away no take away your shot euro an inspection from uh, you know, the government department, then an inspection for the police, then check the policies, update the policies, show the policies to the coronavirus task force. A Maya. It's been a complete Maya. So during my relaxed time last year, since my sister-in-law is an enologist mm. and she makes wine, and she makes wine in this small vineyard outside my hometown. Biodynamic agriculture, natural wine. I was sipping the wine, I was thinking, you know, this wine would be wonderful with the project of cuisine that we are working on. And she's like, well, why don't you serve that?
0: Yeah.
1: I said, well, because importing stuff has become incredibly expensive and, uh, you know, troublesome in, uh, at the moment. I say, well, look, you know that there's Someone, there's an Australian wine importer that imports the whole production. It's a small vineyard. I say, Really? They say, Yeah, they're like, Well, you know, but maybe I don't know, maybe it's in Sydney, maybe it's in Western Australia. I say, Well, let me look it up. She said, Let me look it up and I'll tell you where it is And then she goes, Oh, do you know a place called coneywood <laughs> yeah. And I say, wow, like, problem is sorted. <laughs> he specialized, this guy, Quelvino, his name is an Italian, Australia, Michael Zaccaria. Uh, he specialized in natural wine from Emilia Romagna. <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> I called him and I said, Michael, bingo. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I got a lot of his wines, and um, they go well with our cuisine, they go well with our fried stuff, the gnocco fritto that you've tried, all yeah. this, like. They have these, like, multi. The way I describe them is they've got a depth of flavor, a, fiz, a, a like a fizziness that goes extremely well with fried stuff, with antipasti, with the truffle croquettes, and also with pasta, rustic pasta recipes. You know, so, and to me, I always have that emotional. You know, connection with uh, the wine that my nonna used to make because yes. my nonna used to be like that. Wow! Um, and making wine for them was a side thing. Eh? Like yeah, like yeah. lots of the Italians when they made the passata, the the wine, and all of that, it's a side thing. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, my nonna and also my nonna's family is, you know, always used to make wine. Um, my nonna's sister owns like a small vineyard, and I remember every Christmas, every Easter. They used to bring this wine on the table that was you know unrefined, unfiltered like um, cloudy, and that was the only wine that I used to drink when I was little you know in Italy, you start drinking one when you're little because you know you drink first you start drinking a little bit in the water <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: then after you know when you're more <laughs> than fifteen, you can have it without the water yeah but that's a very good thing that I like about our culture because you know um, we grow up with the idea that wine is not a taboo mm. we
0: mm.
1: get used to it we we know that it's part of the way we socialize and the way we spend time with our family yeah. and especially is the older one that control and pour you the wine you know you're not allowed to pour in yourself until you achieve a certain age right? Yeah. but that's what happened we don't turn 18 with the idea God, oh, we gotta go and get the booze yes <laughs> To get smashed, which is what I see here sometimes. Yeah, you know? in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: fresh, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And um, and when I started going outside and traveling, I, you know, I started having the more classic wines, you know, the Chianti, uh, Pinot Gris, uh, Chardonnay, Sauve Blanc. And I was like, mm, this wine are different from the one that I have. Then I learned, no, that's, is the wine that is known outside of my region yeah, wow.
0: okay.
1: and i thought you know oh the wine would be that we make is not popular outside it's just our wine you know until a few years ago where i where i you know started noticing god like this is the wine you know the wine that i used to drink when i was little is, ta- is starting to become popular again
0: But it's interesting because I would have said I don't like natural wine. Because when I went to, and I love Dr. Morse, but um, I went to Dr. Morse and all of the wines were natural wine. I'm like, oh, God, I can't drink any of this. But the other night, the wines that I tasted here, I loved them. Mm. So what is that? (laughs)
1: Because, you know, there's, like, the possibilities when it comes to natural wine are, like, huge, Mm. you know, um the philosophy is different from the traditional winemaker from the traditional winemaking and this is another thing that i really appreciate in the philosophy uh, because traditional winemaking is normally done with uh, it can be done in every part of the world like if you do it in california in france or in australia you can use same sauvignon blanc for example Um, the yeast that you use for the fermentation is a commercial yeast that gets that can be found in different parts of the world and it's assembled to give you a certain style of fermentation mm. and are sold, you know, like, for example, imagine the yeast that is sold in baking, you know, um, uh, these sort of things. Uh, when it comes to natural winemaking, all these things are not allowed because you're allowed to use only grapes that belong to that, indigenous grape. Oh. So, the one that we had the other day is Spergola. Yeah. It's a grape that you can't grow in California, in Australia, or. Uh, it's, it's a classic uh, indigenous grape of Emilia Romagna that used to be used centuries ago already. The yeast must come from the same land. You can't go and buy a commercial yeast. Oh. Um, the agriculture. Must be either uh, organic or biodynamic, mm. so there, there's no chemistry involved, no fertilizers. You know, I picked up all of these things because you know, with my background, to me, it was very easy to understand all of these things. You know, because the definition about natural one can be confusing. But when we talk about no intervention of chemistry and this sort of stuff, to me, it's always been very clear because I understand those processes. Um, so instead of like the, the winemaker in natural winemaking instead of thinking oh I gotta make a beautiful Sauvignon Blanc that people like the approach is for the natural winemaker like my sister-in-law who uses exactly that approach is how can I ex- give the best expression of this grape in this point in time so with this crop that I've got yeah in the glass yeah so, and if you think that, they're not allowed to use fertilizers, they're not allowed to use irrigation, they're not allowed to use sulfites. They, they, they basically, they're allowed to use only the grape. Mm. It becomes a lot more tricky mm. because you, you're, you're not allowed to use adjustments. So, what happens? If you know what you're doing and if you're an experienced winemaker, you know, and you've got a good understanding of what you're doing, you can turn the grape into an outstanding wine like to me the Frisante the one we had the other night and also the, you had the rosé as well
0: I was going to bring the rosé out <laughs> because um, I lived in the south of France so I feel like I love those those light Provençal rosés and I was blown away by that rosé yeah
1: so um, can uh, I buy it can you buy yeah, a wine yeah, off the
0: shelf here absolutely
1: oh, yeah great. we do I think that we do you know I want to do uh, off the shelf we give 30% discount yeah you know, because I want to encourage people, you know, you've got some friends over, instead of going to Denmark if you want to have something a little bit more, and the good thing about many natural wines is that they're not more expensive than the classic wines, you know.
0: So is that rosé from that, from your area as well? Uh,
1: You're talking about the one with the bubbles or the steel one?
0: Oh, I liked both of them.
1: The one with the bubbles? yes.
0: But the still one... No. The
1: still one is from Marque region. I did Which like is it. just yeah. below a million I think that's what I was
0: talking about. But I did mm. like the bubbles
1: one. This one's I, I was... It's thinking. got a nice... Uh, that one's got a nice... Um, apart from being extremely soft on the mm. palette, um, it's also got nice, like, flowers, like the violets. Ah, yeah, you know, it's yeah, very... Wow. Um, it's very distinctive. Mm. And it's not easy to find a rosé a good rosé in, uh, in Italy, that's why you see a lot of Provence style rosés here, but when you go to Italian restaurants, it's hard, because we don't have the same grape and the same climate of the south of France. Yeah.
0: Um, but what is the geography and climate in Emilia Romagna?
1: We've got, um, most wine, we've got flatland and hills. Oh. And so the soil can be different and that already gives a quite of a big variety of soil then you've got part of Emilia-Romagna is also facing the sea mm. which another part is not so you've got another you know you've got already three dimension in the climate then you've got in general summers are hot springs are warm mm, and very like mellow heat nice very enjoyable spring there winters are cold
0: yeah
1: so cold winter cold winters hot summer warm springs you know it's a help for winemaking okay because you know you, it gives um, basically when the grape grows it allows you know to be exposed like being exposed to cold develops certain qualities in the grape being exposed to heat gives odour but when the heat is consistent like in the Italian summer that's when you get you know, a good concentration of sugar and mm. you can work with flavour mm. um, the interesting thing about climate in, in Italy is that from north to south you have so many different micro ecosystems yeah. that the variety of wine that Italy makes is outstanding mm. France is the same because also France is a big country. Yes,
0: I was going to say, and then I realise it's probably a mistake to say this, but I, I feel like New Zealand is becoming the same as well. I'm from New Zealand, and oh, I feel okay. like um, from, from Christchurch. Ah. But you know that that Central Otago region, it actually can get surprisingly warm in the summer. Yes. And, and they have the best stone fruit, and now they have all those really amazing Pinot Noirs from Bannockburn yes. and so on from Central Otago. And it's very cold there in the
1: winter, so I think that's a really interesting cold idea. Cold yeah. is a, a necessary condition for mm. Pinot Noir. That's yeah. why, cold, having cold winters. That's why the only region that does very good Pinot Noir in Italy is the Trentino Alto Adige, which is up where the Alps are.
0: Because
1: mm. for example, if you go to south of Italy, no one's making Pinot Noir mm. because you need cold winters.
0: Well, I don't really like the Australian Pinot Noirs, apart from the Tasmanian ones and I think because Tasmania is quite similar to New Zealand to that climate Mm -hmm. as well that must be, yeah, why? (laughs) Yeah,
1: they're very, I mean I'm I'm learning
0: so much from you (laughs) all coming together
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's true, like, Pinot Noir from New Zealand is better to me than Pinot Noir, I don't find it's easy to drink the Australian Pinot Noir, the one from Mornington, for example, and I think this is the reason why Many customers like it. Mm. I have both because at the very beginning I used to have only the Pinot Noir from um, from Italy,
0: mm.
1: but it's quite of a different style. It's full cherry, and it's got oakiness and a bit of spices too, okay. which is what Italians expect from a Pinot Noir from Italy. Right. But when some customer used to order that, said, oh, but I was expecting something different. And then I've learned that they are expecting the Pinot Noir from Mornington which doesn't have any oakiness doesn't have any spice it's like a juice yeah it's light yeah yeah true that's what it is it's light it's light and a bit fruity yeah and very easy to drink you know not very structured so it makes it easy to drink that's why they like it Mm. um but so now that I have both Mm. but that's why I agree with you like Pinot Noir from from New Zealand is a lot more interesting than yeah than the one from Mornington, um, but yeah New Zealand is doing quite well with wines too. Mm. They've
0: come a long way I think in many, many areas.
1: Well it seems <laughs> that New is Zealand well. is, it seems that New Zealand for agriculture is more ahead than,
0: uh,
1: yeah. uh, than Australia, yeah. Australia is still a lot about like intensing farming in their, uh, I work in the farm, I did the farm, I did the farm work to get the second working holiday visa. Oh,
0: did you? Yeah. Yeah,
1: wow. So I remember I had a lot of conversation with farmers, you know. That's
0: such a funny idea, I still think, because as New Zealanders, you know, I'm not a permanent,
1: ah, yes, oh, well, yes.
0: I'm a pimp, well,
1: am I a pimp? You know, my, I'm a... my ex-girlfriend, the first girlfriend that I had here in Australia <laughs> was from Christchurch, ah, Angela, yeah. Right. So that's why I know something about, yeah, she moved here after the the earthquake.
0: Me too, Ah. (laughs) a lot of us did, yeah, yeah.
1: And um, so it's through her that I've learned, you know, I've never been to New Zealand, but through her I learned a lot of the differences between... Because when you come here from Europe, you think, oh, Australia and New Zealand.
0: You You tend to
1: think, you know, oh, yeah, pretty much. Instead, very different. Very different. Different mentality.
0: Well, it's a small country. It's five million people in the whole country. So then, there you do have a different mentality when you grow up on an island with that amount of people, who, and I think it's a country that, um, that strives to, to be, you know, to play with the big players, you know, in sports mm. and in music yeah, and in art yeah. and so on. And
1: for being a small country, yeah, you know, like. Uh yeah. It's doing really well.
0: Yeah,
1: And also what I admire about New Zealanders is, you know, they to, in hospitality, farming, they take pride in what they do.
0: Yeah,
1: That's why I see them working and caring more about their products than the Australians. The Australians most of the time is about this. Mm. You know, instead of, in New Zealand, I noticed, you know, because there's a lot of New Zealanders that come here to Melbourne. Mm, you know, yes, that's right. To work in hospitality and um, yeah,
0: a lot of the manager of Tipo
1: zero zero, for example, was from New Zealand. Oh, okay. When I went there, yeah, yeah you're right. like they want to do, they want to do well. They yeah. respect the products. They understand, you know, what clean agriculture is. You know, they take pride for what they grow, and this is reflected by the New Zealanders that I met here. Yeah, good.
0: That's good to know. But much as I love it all being about me <laughs> Go back, back to talk no, <laughs> great celebration of my country but <laughs> back to you and, um, yeah so how is it going now that you've changed the um, person no how would you you've changed it up a bit here
1: <laughs> I, yeah I wanted to venture into uh, like a full restaurant because two reasons like I love coffee Yeah That's been my first love I would say uh, But then When I go outside And eat in other restaurants And I see I always thought I can do this
0: Yeah
1: Like I've got the understanding uh, I just needed the people And The the, the change is When I met Gabriele Because Gabriele The chef Used to be one of my customers Oh okay He used to work at Caffe Latte Yeah and cafe-cucina. And so, since he was, you know, the, the classic Italian chef that fuels on himself on caffeine and he wanted an Italian espresso, so mm. I remember him coming here every morning before work and always stopping here, always having two espressos, you know, one having a chat and then another one. Very classic of the chef, so they get all <laughs> ready for <laughs> and, um then you know, slowly I started. I get I got into knowing him, you know, and I thought you know, like he's such a lovely guy. He doesn't have you know, unlike many other chefs that they're very they can be very edgy, you know. They drink, they do drugs. I work with a lot of chefs and mm. to find one chef that's got really like, stable. Yeah. Um, agreeable personality or, uh, you know. I was impressed with Gabriele had, you know, a huge passion for what he does. And this you can find in Indonesia, but also was, you know, very, like a a nice guy.
0: Yeah.
1: A nice guy. And so the chance to work together came just when the pandemic started, because all the restaurants, the classic restaurant had to close down. We were open because we were pumping out coffee, and so he said, you know, I don't want to stay home for the next year or so. We, I mean, not that we knew how long we were staying shut for, but I said, I want to do stuff, and I said, well, why don't you come here?
0: Mm.
1: You know, I said, yeah, well, you know, I like to work at dinners because we do better stuff, and I said, well, that's exactly what I want to do. Mm. <laughs> so, How about the deal was, how about you come and work with us, and then if you like, we work together at something, you yeah. know? I, I would be, you know, super happy to find someone like you that is passionate and all that. In the meantime, I got to know his family because his mom came here, his partner, uh, Carlotta. And uh, two years ago, during the pandemic, they had a baby as well, you know, he lives around here. So um, I thought, I think, you know, this guy can, we can get along together and do something together.
0: It's lovely. There's such a nice feel amongst um, the, your team. You know, you feel it feels like family because you mm. all know each other so well, and you clearly all love what you do, and you care about the yeah. the diners' experience. And that, I mean, that really comes through. And and that's, I think, I think people forget uh, what what hospitality is. And I mean, I think that the diners have a a role to play as well. And you know being I think appreciative the, diner, and,
1: <laughs> and, the diners actually reflect a lot of your personality yes. if they see that you're passionate if you see that you're striving to do you know to deliver a good experience because it's not just you know it's not just about food having good food good wine good coffee you know it's just a starting point mm. then you know these without the experience that you're delivering you know it's, it's not enough mm. it's about how people feel as well you know and of course I always like to talk about the stories behind the espresso the past or the natural wines I always love to talk about these things because I want them to understand that there's a there's a specific philosophy you know because I really would like in the future I want to work more you know on communicating the fact that we really want to be, you know, to, to do what we do, um, in a, you know, by promoting sustainability and artisanality of what we do, because that's what I believe in for the future, you know. Um, the reason why I like natural wine is not only because of, you know, the flavor that might have in the glass that, as we were talking about before, sometimes you find wine that, you know, people love and sometimes... I've got some wines that people would taste them and say. Jeez, what is that you know <laughs> that are too, a bit too extreme yeah I like those too but I'm conscious that not everybody likes them yeah you know um, but what I like about them is the philosophy that's behind them you know there's no intensive farming there's no you know use of chemicals um, there's no um, big commercial logics behind them you know and they work really hard right? because when I, when I saw the way they work in a biodynamic, for example, where my sister-in-law works, you know, it's very hard work. Mm. It's easier to use mechanical equipment. All the grapes are harvested by hand, you know, so there's a lot of work. I like to think that what I do here promotes what they do and also support them, yeah. you know hence, you know, the cheese from my friend, uh, from my former neighbor, the wine from, uh, you know, and, and Victoria and Melbourne are an incredibly good place to promote these things. Mm-hmm. And so I like to tell these stories to the yeah. customers so they are aware that there is something, it's not just giving you, you know, this and that. Yeah. There's a reason why I give you this and that. But at the same time, the experience you probably noticed how in the past five years the experience in many Melbourne restaurants went down a lot uh, for many reasons but um, I remember up to five years ago before the pandemic I used to go out at least three times a week now it's enough if I go once because most of the time when I go out the experience is cold Mm. You got staff that it seems that you're doing them a favor to be there. There's no passion. You know, yes, there's a concept. Yes, there's a branding. Yes, there are all these elements that make you think, "Oh, yeah, this is cool." But when it comes to the human interaction, I got left with a bit of a mm. Yes. You know. That's right. So I now I go out one, maybe once a week sometimes not even once a week yeah, yeah. Mm. so I really care about you know we do a lot of we have a lot of conversation with the staff on, you know how you should talk to the customer what the customer wants to see uh, uh, here you know you're going to make them feel good
0: yeah
1: the, the the metaphor that I always use when I explain you know especially to the new staff that I hire is like you know, this sector is about trading. You really trade energy, you don't trade, you know, products. You really trade energy. Because if you manage to get someone walking the door in the morning that is grumpy, you know, that is upset for something, you never know what's going on in other people's life, you know. But if with your interaction you manage to have the people walking out with a smile, geez, that's all it is in this sector. Yeah. You know, and in, sometimes I say, "I would serve a coffee that is not as good as this one, but you know what I care about that is that person walks out with a smile you know that's all it is, but it's an element that is you know that it got harder and harder to understand today for many operators so Thank you. You're welcome. Sorry, so I feel like I talk too much. <laughs> I, I, I feel
0: but like I mean, it was a were wonderful for, talk. <laughs> you're here for this. I was. Yes. I am. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Claudio Cassoni at Officina Gastronomica Italiana. So sorry for my Italian. You can check out all the goodness on Instagram at OGI Melbourne. If you liked what you heard and you want to hear more stories from other chefs, I'm on Instagram at Conversation with a chef. You can read the chat and become a subscriber at www.conversationwithashef.com. What's good about becoming a subscriber is that I feel loved and I think there's actually maybe people who are reading this <laughs> um, as well as listening to it. And then you also get to know when new stories come up because it comes into your inbox, I believe. I'd also absolutely love it if you told a friend about my chats. And of course, you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts and recently Audible and Amazon podca- podca- podcasts as well. So like a potteroo, but in a podcast form. Once again, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bon appétit.